Well, welcome to Christ the King. I'm so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. And if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King. And I want to welcome everybody here at our Bellingham campus. Special welcome to those of you who are joining us at Ferndale. You know, one of the questions I often get is, you know, what's the deal with Ferndale? What's going on out there? And, uh, and so Ferndale, say hi, Bellingham. Say hi to Ferndale. Just get a little high. That's good. There's about 200 plus people that actually meet at a campus in Ferndale on Sunday mornings. And uh, we have an opportunity to kind of use technology to get that going. And, and they are absolutely passionate about reaching their own community for Christ. That's what it's all about. And so welcome, Ferndale. Glad to have you. Also want to welcome everybody who's watching online this week. Glad that you had an opportunity to kind of click your way towards us. And I uh, hope you have an opportunity um, to really be touched by God as well. One quick announcement as we get started, particularly uh, pertains here to the Bellingham campus, because Ferndale, we kind of do our own thing with small groups out in the Ferndale area, but for Bellingham people, if you're trying to get connected into a small group, we're doing a small group launch pad that's happening on Sunday afternoon, and the details will be there in your program. The little tag phrase that you've heard for years, if you've been at CTK, is always a place for you. Well, we are going to add a second one to that. Over the next couple of years, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. There's always a place for you, but we want you to always be in community, no matter what. Because if you're not in community, you're exposed, and you're alone, and that's dangerous spiritually. So there's always a place for you. We want you to always be in community, and that's an opportunity to get plugged in. And uh, if you'd like to avail yourself of that opportunity, that would be great on Sunday afternoon. So last Sunday afternoon, there was a little football game that happened. Some of you probably noticed that. I think it's funny that so many people become experts about football around the Super Bowl. I mean, we sit at home in our chairs watching very large men in very tight pants go out, and they participate in a game that we actually think we have some influence over. I mean, you know, we cheer and we yell, and at the end of the game, we make these kinds of statements, which are lies. We say, we won. You didn't win anything. You won nothing because it didn't cost you anything to be a part of the Super Bowl. But I still love the Super Bowl. I do. I love the Super Bowl for three reasons. The food, the commercials, and the game. In that order. And let me tell you why. I love chicken wings and taco dip more than I like football. It's just a statement of truth. I love the commercials more than I love the game, unless, of course, a team that I deeply care about is actually participating in the game, and that has not happened for a long, long, long time, all right? This year, I caught a commercial that I thought was hilarious, and I think it actually has a lot to do with what we've been studying as we've been walking through the book of Exodus. Maybe you've seen it before, but we're going to have an opportunity to see it again. If you're watching online, while we're watching this, this is what I need you to do. I need you to click Little Darth Vader on YouTube, and then we're all going to watch it together. Let's watch the side screens. I just love that little guy. I mean, because... You know, and then when the car actually kicks in, it's like, did I actually just do that? I love that little guy because he reminds me of somebody. He reminds me of a guy in the story of Exodus by the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he's a god. Pharaoh thinks he wields unbelievable power and that the God of the Israelites is nothing in comparison to him. And this weekend, we're going to watch a showdown between the God of Israel and a guy who thinks he's a god. It's time for the real God to stand up and show his power. This week, we're going to see who actually has the power and who's holding the remote. 
Let's go backwards before we charge ahead. Here's just a quick review of what we've seen so far on the road out. We started with this phrase the first week. The people of God are in captivity. They're slaves in Egypt and they can't get out on their own. Secondly, we learn in the second week that the people of God cry out to him and he hears them. Just like us, pain equals the action of crying out to God for help. And the same God who hears and remembers and sees and is deeply concerned about the people of Israel is the same God that hears us when we cry out and we have the same promise that God sees, that he hears, that he remembers, and that he's deeply concerned about each and every one of us. A couple of weeks back, we learned that God chooses Moses to lead the people. This is a fairly normal guy, works a blue-collar job. He's got strengths and he's got weaknesses. He's like every other leader that I've ever met, deeply insecure at certain levels, but just fixated on some kind of a calling that's been placed inside of their life. This guy, Moses, has a message to bring to Pharaoh, and the message is simple. Let my people go. But Pharaoh has a bit of an attitude. He thinks he's God. He thinks he can do amazing things, even though all of the evidence basically says, you're not that big of a deal. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is no. And as we learned last weekend, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. God says go, Pharaoh says no. So it's time for a showdown. And this is what happens next. God Almighty in heaven speaks And this is what he says to Moses and Aaron. You're to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt. With mighty acts of judgment, I'll bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. These mighty acts of judgment are a series of plagues that come about because Pharaoh will not humble himself and release God's people. Pharaoh's disobedience brings about something that we all deal with when we're disobedient. It brings about consequences. This is our deal as well. I mean, when we live in disobedience to God's plan, there's consequences. But here's the funny thing. Even though it's our disobedience, we get mad at God for the very consequences that happen, even though it's our actions that precipitated the consequences. It kind of goes like this. You know, God, I I admit it. I stole money from work, but I cannot believe that you let my employer press charges. What were you thinking, God? Don't you love me? Why didn't you save me? I said I was sorry. And we get mad at God because we get exactly what we should have got, the consequences. I made up a definition this week for consequences. I would call them this. Consequences are love wrapped in reality. Consequences are love wrapped in reality. As we walk through this section, let's make sure we understand the purpose of the plagues. Because if you don't understand the purpose of the plagues, they can look unbelievably punitive, okay? I put it in your outline this way. The purpose of the plagues was to allow Pharaoh to acknowledge the true God. That was the purpose. All God wanted was for little Pharaoh to understand who was holding the remote. All right? 
Last week, there was a moment when Pharaoh asked a question, and the question was this, what God? What God do you represent, Moses? I don't acknowledge any other God. I'm the only God in Egypt. And in this moment, the true God simply wants Pharaoh to acknowledge that he was not God, but that God was actually God. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. And the plagues begin. I listed them in your outline. We're actually going to walk through all ten of them. The first plague that came was a plague of blood. The first plague turned the water of the Nile River, which was the main source of water in that entire country, into blood. I mean, just imagine the Nooksack River flowing, not with water, but with red blood. It spreads up the creeks and into the ponds. The fish all start dying. It stinks. It's terrible. And people very shortly are screaming for water because they're thirsty. I mean, as a human being, you can't go very long without water. You need it. The Bible says they actually start digging because their water source is not a water source anymore. It's a blood source. I mean, that's all it would have taken for me to be convinced. God snaps his finger and the nooksack turns red. I'm done. I'm all good at that point, right? I've got it at this point. Moses shows up. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Seven days goes by. Moses comes to Pharaoh again. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and out comes the second plague. It's the plague of frogs. Now, we think frogs and we think Kermit, all right? Let's be honest, right? And it sounds kind of cute, right? Kermit bouncing around. Until you see the Bible says that Kermit is everywhere. In your kitchen, in your oven, inside of the pots and pans, in your bed, crawling out from behind your big screen. I mean, Kermit is everywhere. Frogs everywhere. Pharaoh freaks and asks Moses. He actually says, Moses, I want you to pray to God and pray that he'll take these frogs away. This is not cool anymore. In fact, for the first time, he actually promises that if God takes the frogs away, that he'll let the people go. I think that's hilarious. He's trying to make a deal with a God that he doesn't recognize. I don't believe in him, but if you'll pray to him that this pain will go away, I'll be down with that. And we kind of snicker at that, but I've got a question. Have you ever done that? You know, you ever had a moment which is like, I don't believe in God, but I'm in really, really big trouble, so right now I'm going to try and cover all of my bases and I'm going to pray to everything and everybody because I just need some help. Pharaoh makes another interesting play at this particular point that I think we fall victim to. In the verses that cover the frog plague, Pharaoh makes an interesting statement. If God makes the frogs go away, I'll let the people go tomorrow. Can't get around to it right now. My schedule's very, very busy. So I'll take care of this little thing tomorrow. And how many times do we as God's people put off what God wants done today to tomorrow? I'll share my faith with that guy at work tomorrow. I'll honor God with my tithes and my offerings after I get all of my other stuff together. I'll take care of that tomorrow. I don't think we can judge Pharaoh very harshly on this one, but that's what he says. I'll let them go after the frogs are gone tomorrow. My friends, I have no guarantee of tomorrow and neither do you. Don't put off to tomorrow what God is asking you to do today. And if God is calling you to come to him today, do it now. 
do it now. Next day, God actually answers the prayer and the frogs are gone. Once again, Pharaoh flips and changes his mind. I mean, the pain goes away. Do you notice that? The pain goes away and suddenly I don't need God anymore. The frogs are gone. I'm going to keep these guys exactly where I want them. It's time for another plague. The Bible says that the next plague is gnats with a G. Think lice. The Bible says the dust of Egypt became like lice and they were on everything. I mean, as a kind of a germaphobe, I start itching just thinking about this one. I mean, here's an interesting note. One of the reasons Pharaoh changes his mind after the first couple of plagues is because the Bible actually tells us that Pharaoh has magicians and sorcerers who are actually able to match God in the miracle at that point. Moses does something cool. Pharaoh's followers are able to pull off something cool too. You don't believe me? You can go read it in Exodus for yourself. I mean, they're able to counterfeit the miracle. So Pharaoh keeps reasoning to himself, I actually have some power here. I mean, my guys over here in the posse, these guys know exactly what they're doing. He thinks that he still has power. And just like last week we exposed Satan's plan for division by turning Hebrew against Hebrew and thinking people of both futile, he's doing exactly the same thing here because Satan also uses counterfeits. God wants love. Satan counterfeits it as lust. God wants trust. Satan will counterfeit it as greed. God wants eternal joy for you. Satan counterfeits it as temporary happiness. Well, after a little while, when the sorcerers are crawling with lice, they actually show up after this particular, after this particular plague, and they say, excuse me, Mr. Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, and it's pointing at you right in your chest, and you should listen. His own guys actually say, this is God's finger, and you need to listen up, Mr. Pharaoh. Pharaoh's still not convinced, so here comes another plague. Number four is flies. I hate flies. Just one of them is enough to wreck my afternoon. You know, you get one in your house, it just keeps buzzing around your head, and you're chasing around with a dishcloth trying to kill that thing, and you just can't get it. I mean, it will ruin your day. Well, imagine flies everywhere. This one's interesting, because after this one, Pharaoh actually calls Moses and says, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. Pray for me, Moses. I need help. So Moses prays, and the flies go away. And the instant the pain is gone, Pharaoh goes right back to his old ways again. Again. He says, the people can't go. So here comes another plague, number five. It's the death of livestock. Can you imagine, right here in Whatcom County, if every single animal suddenly was dead? I mean, we'd be able to see it. There would be evidence of it everywhere. Now, let me clarify this. All of the Egyptian livestock dies. But the livestock that's owned by God's people seems to be just fine. I mean, you'd think that'd be a pretty clear message, but Pharaoh still doesn't get it. Once more, he makes a promise. I'm going to let the people go. Then the things die, and he says, I'm coming right back at it. As soon as he gets removed from it, he holds on to the Israelites. It's like a tennis match. It goes back and forth. Release, retain, release, retain, back and forth. This guy just can't figure it out. So once more, he says, people can't go. Here comes plague number six, boils. Yay. Imagine boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Infected, painful sores all over your body. I mean, at this point, because I'm a bit of a wimp, it would have been, I'm done. 
Just make it stop. Get these people out of here. But not Pharaoh. He just keeps holding on. Now, before you judge him again and think to yourself, why doesn't this guy get a clue? Like, why doesn't he just change? Do something different. Why does he keep doing the same thing over and over and over again? Before you judge him, let me ask you a question. How long have you held on to an ungodly attitude in your life? How long did you hold on to your addiction before you finally let it go? How long did that root of bitterness between you and blank, how long did it last down in your heart before you finally came to your senses? How about the spirit of unforgiveness? Did it take months? Did it take years? I mean, we call Pharaoh stubborn. This guy's in misery, and it still doesn't change him. He still will not release the Israelites. The people of Egypt are in misery. He still won't let go. So here comes another plague, number seven. It's the plague of hail. I mean, it pounds the whole country, knocks everything flat. And this time, Pharaoh's response is pretty different. Chapter 9, verse 27, here's Pharaoh's words. This time I have sinned. You think? This time I've sinned. He said to them, the Lord is right, and I and my people are wrong. So pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I'll let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Finally, the guy gets it right, and it's over, right? Nope. The Bible says in Exodus 9, when Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. Right back to it. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he wouldn't let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. I mean, this is so important. He makes a confession with his mouth, but not with his heart. And there's a difference. A false confession is not a confession of all, at all. Standing before God and saying, God, I promise to change. I really mean it this time. It doesn't count unless that is the actual moment of confession and repentance. Back to the sin he goes. Back to the sin we go. So it's time for another plague. Number eight, locusts. Can you imagine bugs everywhere? Bugs eating everything left over from the hailstorm. This time it's funny. Pharaoh's own guys come to him and they plead with him. Let the people go. Like seriously, dude, we've had enough. Egypt is ruined. Can you just admit it? You know, you think you're Pharaoh. But God is God. Like, just quit. Please, humble yourself before there's absolutely nothing left. It's interesting, because now, it's not a contest anymore between God and Pharaoh, or it's not a conflict anymore. Now it's a contest. This guy's ego is completely checked in here. So he digs in his heels one more time. And here comes another plague. It's the plague of darkness, number nine. We're getting close to the end. I know this is not all that encouraging to go through, right? This time God turns the lights out. You know why that one is such a big deal? It's a big deal because Pharaoh believed he was Ra, the god of the sun. He believed he was the light bulb that kept it going for the entire nation. Suddenly, God goes, lights out, Mr. Sun God. And when Mr. Sun God can't turn the lights back on, well, that pretty much would have done it for me. 
Once again, let my people go. Once again, the answer is no. I mean, if you can't give Pharaoh anything, you at least have to give him the fact that he's consistent, right? You know, nine in a row. Now comes the heavy stuff. The last plague is the plague of death. God tells Moses there's one more plague coming. And it's a heartbreaking one. The eldest son in every single family will die. It's going to be a tragedy of epic proportions, but there's a provision that God allows for those who are willing to take the road out. God instructs the people of Israel to do this, to take a spotless lamb and to kill it. Okay, now don't go all PETA on me, all right? It's biblical history, okay? And it's going to get better as we walk through it. God has a plan for all of this. The Israelite people were to slay, to kill, and sacrifice a spotless lamb. And then they were to take the blood of the lamb, and they were to paint it on the doorposts of their home. And on the night when the tragedy would take place, the homes that were covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb would be passed over. You've probably heard of the phrase before Passover. That is what people are celebrating this point in history. This is where God saves his people through the Passover. Exodus 12, 12 says this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Maybe you remember from last week when I kind of popped off at the end of the service and described who this God is, all-powerful, almighty, and all-personal. I am the Lord. The verse goes on and says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Why in the world does that matter to the people of Christ the King at Bellingham and in Ferndale in 2011? Let me tell you why this is so unbelievably important. The very covering that God offered His chosen people is offered to me and you through the Passover Lamb whose name is Jesus Christ. He offers the same thing to us, even though we've all sinned. Even though we've all hardened our hearts and refused to yield to God at times, God in His amazing love is willing to pass over our sin with forgiveness and still have a relationship with us because His own Son, Jesus Christ, became the spotless Lamb and died once and for all so that we could be spared. That's amazing. God gave up His own Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, so we could have life. This is what the Bible says about Jesus, our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Do you know what's good about that? That sacrifice was done once and for all. That's why we no longer have to sacrifice anything, because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We never have to go back to that again, because Jesus paid the debt in full. Secondly, the Bible says in 1 Peter, for you know, 
that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake and for my sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. The lamb was slain so that you and I could be set free. Just like the blood was spilled, and I'm sure the Israelite people that day, scared to death, painted it over top of the doorposts of their home as God passed over top of them and allowed them to live. That same promise has been made to each and every one of us. And at this point in the service, I want you to start thinking about this. If he sacrificed his life for you, Isn't it time you surrendered your life to him? In a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, who died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Do you know why the cross hangs here? It's not just a nice piece of Christian furniture. It's a reminder to each of us of the Passover lamb who died so that we could live. You know, here's a thought that really touched me deeply this week. God loved Pharaoh. I know some of you would kind of look at that and go, really? Really? God loved Pharaoh. Even though he had a hard heart and he refused to recognize God's power, God still loved him. And sometimes people get so focused on the hard heart of Pharaoh that they miss the soft heart of God trying to reach him. Think about it. God tried to reach him through the prayers of Moses. God tried to reach him through his own magicians and sorcerers. I mean, they showed up and said, this is the finger of God. Get a clue. God tried to love him by allowing him to have a moment of obedience and then change his mind over and over and over again. God loved him because he allowed him to speak a confession that he really didn't mean. And then he actually allowed him to take it back with his actions. When you think about it, God loved him by giving him multiple opportunities to change his course and his direction. In fact, if I read my Bible right, there were 10 opportunities for Pharaoh to change his direction. That looks like patience to me. If I was God in that moment, it would have been one and you're done. I'm going to squash a little Darth Vader right now. But that's not the way God works. He's long-suffering and patient. He gives him opportunity after opportunity, back to back to back, to simply acknowledge God, which means this for all of us. No matter how hard your heart may have been, the fact that you're still breathing is proof that the God of heaven loves you. 
because he wants to give you this opportunity to have the Passover lamb wash you as white as snow.